Welcome, everybody, to today's Ascendo Reliability webinar. This is Fred Schankelberg. And um, this was a topic that, for me, started a long time ago. And in the chat, I put up the noMTVF.com site. And just by chance, I got a message yesterday or in a follow-up this morning that somebody is having trouble visiting that site, which kind of doesn't work as a communicating vehicle if somebody can't actually open the site, see anything there. And they were getting a, a does not connect message. And I started that site in part because I went on stage to do a presentation. I had 90 minutes at a conference uh, to talk about, and I don't even remember what the original topic was, uh, but just before I start, got on stage, somebody asked, asked can't get a couple people can't get there. Hmm. All right. Maybe it is a bigger problem. I'll have to see about moving it to a new uh, service. Thanks. Um, but somebody asked me just before I was to get started, um, if I ever had trouble communicating what the meaning of MTBF was, what it actually is and isn't, and what does it represent? And so the, the issue was, as they said, somebody, one of the people on my team thinks it's a failure free period. So if we have a 50,000 hour MTBF for this bearing, it means it won't fail for 50,000 hours. This is, well, that's not really true. So, and then I was being introduced and so I walked out on stage and, and, and instead of starting into my presentation, I mentioned that question I had just gotten and asked the audience. And it was, I don't know, hundred or so people there. And, how many of you have had trouble with other people's understanding of MTBF? How, how many people have misunderstood it? And as far as I could tell, everybody raised their hand. And so I, I happened to have a, a, a tablet of paper on the stage. And so we uh, spent the next hour and a half talking about all the problems that people have with that metric and, and what we can do about it. How can we communicate better about what it is and what it isn't and what does it represent and, and what does it mean and how do we track it and what are better methods, things like that. And that presentation went exceedingly well. I had no slides, I had a piece of paper, uh, but we certainly had an engaged audience. People were frustrated with people, other folks, just not understanding it. And so, I'm gonna take a quick look at chat. Looks like we got a couple people says they can't get to it. And a couple other people said they could get to it, but it's almost 50-50. So I'm really tempted to move that site um, off to ascend over liability, which I hope is a bit more stable. So anyway, today I wanted to talk about how do we communicate and how do we go about doing this? And just as a background, part of it is, is this, it's this, um, when we communicate, what we're really meaning is that what I understand something to be or a concept or, or have a question, or I have some nugget of information of one sort or another, or I want some information from somebody else, I use a variety of different techniques to create this interchange. And so sometimes we're receiving information, our boss is saying, hey, you need to go do this. 
or can you look into this or here's a problem can you go solve it and and sometimes we're asking questions and then we're receiving information and we should be listening all those kinds of things and sometimes we're <clears throat> transmitting information like this webinar it's it, as much as i love to have the um uh uh the the chat window and all the other stuff it's not the same as if we're in the same room together and, and having a conversation or a meeting of some sort to solve some problem but here i'm and many other methods actually help us to transmit information and we'll get into some of those methods i just noticed this image has a bunch of black tape on the cord so i wonder if it even still works anymore you know, I wonder if the old rotary phones even work on the exchanges that we have these days, but I digress. And it looks like Bert gave me a little more information. Yeah, so 127.0.0.1 is localhost, which is um, like could be on your computer or in your local network. Um, yeah, so that suggests that there might be something wrong with the um, IP address of this thing. So I've got to dig into that some more and figure that one out because I really do want to share what I know about MTBF and my concerns about it uh, to a wider audience, but that's a separate topic. But it actually is what got me started thinking about what we do as reliability engineers and how we communicate to people. And I'll run into some examples as we go. Um, so I have images of the of phones, vintage phones uh, today, and we don't use those anymore. But and and I'm trying to remember. Uh, it's probably one actual phone call a week that I actually get on the phone for. I use Zoom or or e email or or all kinds of other techniques and texting and so on, instead of picking up a phone or especially rotary dial phones. But how many ways do you communicate in thinking of reliability? And do you write reports? Do you do presentations? Do you attend meetings? Do you facilitate groups? How many different uh, techniques of communication do you use in your professional life? I wonder, is Slack a, a unique uh, communication vehicle? Or is it sort of like in between text and email or I, I'm not really a big Slack user. I've used it a few times. Teams and reports. All right. Good, Michael. Anybody else? How many different ways do you typically communicate? All right. Casual in-person drive-bys. Yeah, I, I had a, Brian, I had a, a electrical engineer accused me of doing drive-by shootings and catching him at his desk and weekly meetings, teams, mostly teams and email. Okay, all right. I'm starting to wonder what Teams is. I suspect it's the Microsoft one. Is that kind of like Slack, but different? Okay. Everything except Slack, okay. MS Teams, okay. Oh, Teams is, I've run into that where it's it's like Zoom, but it's more integrated into your calendar and Outlook and all that other good stuff. Good morning, Well, from Albuquerque. All right, cool. We communicate lots of different ways. You know what I noticed on here, uh, and I'll, I'll bring that up here a little bit later. 
uh, something I picked up from all those methods we brought in here. And I, in fact, it's my first comment here. Remember that half of the communication equation to transfer information is that we need to be receptive to information. We need to receive information in a good part of our day. And I imagine MS Teams and, and in-person and meetings and stuff like that are places where you can um, receive information. You know, we're going to go to with this new vendor, or we're going to use this different material, or we're going to uh, change the date of the uh, the launch, and hopefully it's later, not earlier, because we have this long accelerated life test that won't be done in time. It's things like that. We pick up information all the time, and part of being a really good communicator in all of the methods that are available is to be very, very good at, at receiving information. And one of the things I learned years and years ago in making presentations, that the difference between a, a good presenter and a great presenter is that the great presenter is listening to the audience and listening by looking for body clues, by looking for engagement, by looking for attention, by looking for how the audience is responding to the method. Now, webinars makes that really tough because they can't see you. And so hopefully I'm uh, as good as I can be on, on this platform. But the idea is, is that the listening part is, is essential to our ability to communicate and listening for everything from body language to words spoken to um, what's the content of the sentences being cast our way or, or into the air. And there's a whole pile of ways we go about doing that. And, and I think I've got a couple of uh, uh, notes or comments when I get into how do you improve this stuff a little bit later, but listening um, and I know it's some quote from somebody with a real famous name, uh, although the, my mother often used it, is that I, she said, you were given two ears and one mouth for a reason kind of thing. And, and she, I think she got tired of telling me to quit interrupting her, you know, things like that. But the idea is, is that there's a wealth of information with our teammates and colleagues and peers and we can listen through LinkedIn. We can listen through our weekly meetings. We can listen in conversations. And it's a skill. Now, you may find it also listed as active listening. And it's a term of a set of skills that you can hone to actually improve your ability to receive information. And we'll talk about a few uh, hints on doing that a bit later. Now, part of active listening is asking questions. And sometimes, and I know I get this all the time, especially when I'm working with a new client and they, it's funny, and I'm sure you've run into it, is that every organization seems to develop their own language. They have terms and acronyms and abbreviations and, and sayings that are unique to them. And they have unique meetings, meaning for their organization, for their experience. And so I'm constantly saying, wait, wait a second, what did you mean by the, the blue dot? It's <laughs> like, what's that mean? And they would explain the, a bit of context for that phrase. Oh, okay, got it. And I added 
a new term or phrase to my vocabulary when working with them. But if I didn't ask the question, the problem is, is that they assume that I'm receiving that information as they intended it to. So asking questions for clarification is a good way to be actively listening, but it also leads to us learning. Uh, and learning is, it might not be in a webinar, it might, it might be reading a book where somebody else created that, I'm gonna use air quotes here, presentation, that book, or that video, or that lecture, or whatever, it's re in some recorded format. Um, they're not even in the room, for example, and you can learn from that. Now, you can also learn in a lecture hall, and although I doubt that's terribly useful, or obviously at, at a webinar. But the idea is, is that for us to communicate, it doesn't necessarily mean we have to be live and in person. It can be um, like email. It's, although some people expect an immediate response on email, um, it's not meant to be the replacement for a phone call. It allows us to say, all right, eight o'clock in the morning, I'm going to check my email and get that out of the way. And then I'm going to go get some other work done and focus on it. And then I'll check email again later. It's not at a, um, hopefully that's the way you get to use it. But learning can be all of those aspects of things that other people have created a communication uh, of some content or concept or idea or e even entertainment. And we can consume that and draw from it and learn from it at a later date. We're receiving that information asynchronously in that request. And let's see, got a, comment, a couple of comments. Yeah truly receiving a good one. Um, yeah, one of the things I, I learned about listening is that it's the when you're not speaking is not the time for you to be um, and, you know, preparing your next a barrage of assault is like, if you're in a discussion with somebody and trying to convince them of something, it's to your benefit in so many different ways to actually understand where the other person's coming from instead of trying to um, force your will upon them with your uh, wonderful arguments. Um, that might work. They might just give up and, and stop listening to you too. But part of a conversation, and you've all seen it, a conversation where two people are just talking past each other as opposed to somebody saying, all right, what is it you're trying to tell me? All right, I understand this part and this part. I'm having trouble with the logic here, expand that. Okay, I get that, all right. I see why you say that. I understand that point of view and stuff. Have you looked at it this way? Is a completely different type of, of communicating is really listening, actually fully understand what they're trying to say and what's their rationale or background or if it's a discussion to make a decision, what information do they need or do they need are lacking that they recognize they need? But you can only really understand that if you listen to it very, very closely. Let's see. Instruction standards requirements. Oh, well, you got all kinds of stuff in here. You know, well, one of the things I, you know, don't start your presentation with your authority. Um, 
I have to coach people doing these webinars and whenever I invite a guest or whatever is they almost always want to start with, you know, a picture of the building they work in and a list of their resumes, credentials, you know, like, no, <laughs> just get into the content. You know, we've got about pages and we all have LinkedIn pages and stuff. Somebody really interested in your background, they'll go find it. Just get into the material. Um, but yeah, I, I get, I, I really don't like somebody, especially when I was at, in conferences and you get a 20 minute time slot and they spend five minutes talking about how wonderful they are. I'm like, I didn't come here to hear your resume. I came here to learn more about reliability block diagrams and a you know certain aspect of what was in your paper. But anyway, a big part of what we do in communicating is receiving information. And there's all kinds of ways that we receive information. Now, one of them, and I'm going to talk about it a couple of times, is receiving a request. And I've seen it a couple of different ways. There's essential elements to a request. And so think of it as, is that if somebody, your boss says, hey, I need that report. Okay. That's not a complete request. Which report, you know, is that clear? You might be working on two or three different projects and which report are they looking for, right? The accelerated life test on vendor A versus vendor B of this material set. Okay. Now I know what report you want. And the way you phrase that is you wanted it immediately, but we still have another couple of weeks ago of gathering data. He says, oh yeah, you're right. But I need it before Tuesday, two weeks from now, so I can go to that meeting. All right, now I have a deadline and a, you know, a rational deadline of when they need it uh, for their decision or for their presentation or whatever they're doing. And I need it in PowerPoint so I can present it, all right? As opposed to written in a report format or in a text message or whatever format is appropriate. It's, they give me some criteria of what technique or form that communication or that report should be. And so form structure, and I need to be clear on, do we know that A is better than B or are we unsure? And it has, so there's a criteria for what that report is to provide. It's not about how wonderful our test rig was set up and how much, how many thermocouples we use. Now that may be included in the report, but that's not what the gist is. That's not the executive summary that should be right up front. And so uh, what do I need? When do I need it? Criteria. Um, and then there's also in, in a case where it's your boss asking you for a report is they are the requester and they want that information back to them that not always happens that way. They may request it to go over to Sally in the next department or, and you're the one that has to act on it. You're the one receiving the request. So if any of those kinds of elements are missing from a request, you should ask for clarification. Do you need that immediately? Or do you need it? When do you actually need it? Do you want, what format do you need it in? Because if, if you hand them a, a three inch thick uh, paper with lots of photos of your test setup and rigs and all the derivations of all the equations and all the cool stuff that you did for this accelerated test. And they go, I can't present this. I need a slide deck. I'm going in to do a presentation right now. Well, why didn't you tell me that earlier? 
So part of it is, is it's on us to make sure that what through questioning and, and how we receive requests is that we get the complete picture of it, help others communicate well with us is part of our obligation in receiving information. Now, outgoing, we have all kinds of different techniques, Pre speaking, presenting, webinars, workshops, seminars, uh, writing, whether it's slide decks or, or reports or novels or whatever. Uh, and then the opposite side, making a request. And of course, the same criteria responses. I would like you to provide the report by two weeks from now on Tuesday morning so that I can present it in PowerPoint format uh, to our team meeting at that time. And I need it to be clear as whether A is better than B or is it unclear? Be very clear about that right up front, which is a whole lot different than, hey, I need that report. Hopefully you can see that. So speaking and presenting is live. Uh, we've got to almost always have an audience unless you're recording it uh, and for use later, but we have lots and lots of opportunity to get really good at speaking and presenting. And that speaking and presenting also plays a role when we're doing a summary in our weekly meeting or we're highlighting the results of something in a, in, a, in a casual conversation. Our ability to speak well and meet the other person's, uh, help the other person actually understand and grasp and, and catch what we want. It includes more than just, we set up a, an Arrhenius equation and we did some research to find the activation energy and here's the equation and then we drove it this way and then we interpret it this way and we got 47 data points and 300 sensor data and we use this kind of a formula to rank order them and we did this kind of regression and we did that setup and yeah it, I've done presentations like that. Most people drip in. If you really want to be left alone at a cocktail party, tell everybody about how to derive a, a Weibull equation or something like that. Just start talking about statistics. Most people just drift away at that point. Part of our ability to speak and present is our voice patterns, our gestures, our ability to engage and to ask questions and to understand the audience, which you always hear about, you need to understand your audience, is what are they looking for? Where are they excited? Where are they not? What are they asking questions about? If, if the audience asks questions, hey, what about A? What about A? What about A? And says, well, we'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. And then the last two seconds of your allotted time goes, oh, back to pre number A, point A, and you're out of time, the, you know, they're pulling you off the stage, basically. If they want to know about A, talk about it. <laughs> Just because you have slides in a particular order doesn't mean you need to use them that way. If the audience wants you to go in this direction and it's germane to the topic you're talking about, go there, go do it. But there's lots and lots of stuff about getting better at speaking and presenting. And the same with writing. Um, I'm not really sure about chat GPT is replacing writing at this point, but I've seen a handful of things and it's getting better, but I still think our ability to write down our concepts and ideas and backgrounds and recommendations and requests and uh, uh, grant proposals uh, or 
whatever it is that we need to actually write down, it behooves us to get good at it. You know, use full sentences and check your punctuation and check spelling. Um, I still get that wrong. And then lots of ways we send information out. And one of the caveats in sending information out is it's something that other people actually want to hear about or listen to or read or whatever. It's help them by understanding what they need and what formats work best and all those other aspects of it. Help other folks get, get through there. Yeah, let's see, William talked about PowerPoint is a great for communicating our team, but should not be used as a substitute for formal writing and documentation. I agree full heartedly, you know. Um, I actually had a company once, I sent them a slide deck for a class that I was getting ready to teach for them. And they said, well, where's the content? It says, read the book. <laughs> we're, we're handing out books. Uh, I think it was the Practical Reliability by O'Connor and, and Kleiner. And he said, you wanted an intro to reliability. And I in the two days that we have, there's no way I can cover all the material that's in that book. Um, so I'm presenting the, the concepts and the keys and we're gonna discuss it. But part of the course is that you should actually read the book. <laughs> and they didn't want that. They wanted the book transcribed basically into PowerPoint slides and with tons of content and long paragraphs and everything else. And they sent me an example of what they were expecting. And I said, no, I'm not presenting that. <laughs> and so that contract didn't work out. Um, yeah, sometimes we just miss each other in our forms of communicating. Sometimes you have the option to uh, demand your method and sometimes you can walk away from it. But many times you have to accommodate the folks that are making the requests for your content, whether it's speaking or writing or whatever. So it's, it's have, being versatile with a good number of different ways to provide information to others is in your best interest. And then exchanging, a great way that we work well with each other or not, and we do this all the time, is, is working with other people. And so many, so many reliability engineers, and I shouldn't say just reliability engineers, any engineer is not taught that in school that you actually get to work with other people. Now it's intuitive, you know, unless you're starting a startup of one person and you're doing everything yourself, um, even then you still need a, a website. So you probably need a service. You probably have a, you know, a phone system that where you engage with clients or you're using Zoom or some other techniques. Um, there's emails and, and comments and uh, text messages and all these other forms that we are dealing with other people. Um, I know I, I was running into an issue uh, with my cell service and it is difficult to get a hold of a real person anymore at some of these companies. And so that was frustrating in itself because they were obviously not understanding in their phone tree, as I should say, uh, the, their ability to obscure you enough so that if it's a real problem, you wade through it all and finally get to a point that you can get a solution. Or, or like I did, is like, screw this, I'm going to a different company. But anyway, we do this a lot. And these are 
all of them are full of different sets of skills. Some of it is speaking or presenting. Some of it, a lot of it is listening, but it also includes elements of all of these other pieces that we are discrete elements of communicating, whether it's talking to somebody or listening from somebody or asking questions, and it mixes them all up and, and blends them all together into these kinds of, of methods. Yet they have differences in and of themselves they, they are worth focusing on and improving so that and, and there are distinct ways you can go about doing that <laughs> couple of reliability i like that one william asked the question in there um it's a arun you once made a powerpoint like well thank you i appreciate that graphics less text members were disappointed as they wanted text to refer back to later any suggestions on to balance that yeah that's a good one arun and i've run into it a handful of times let's say you're you're presenting something and you're doing background on say the the four different functions related to the weibull distribution and and i'm going to go over in the slides they're going to present those uh those formulas and talk about it. And if you're doing one by Chris Jackson, it might not even have the functions that it just, it'll show the concepts. What I typically do is hand out a one piece of paper, front and back if I need it, with the key elements, the key takeaways. Here's the three points that were discussed. Here's the, the four functions in their definitions. You know, it's a one sheet of paper versus 25 slides. Even if they're printed three per slide, it, I can, provide the central information in a much more succinct way. Um, and I don't know that I've, well, I can't say that, that I've never gone back to slides. I've gone back to my notes many times and the, and maybe it's just me, but if somebody hands me kind of the cheat sheet for it, that often goes right in my office wall because it's in a handy format, it's easy to find, it's easy to digest. I don't have to wade through and find slide 46 to find that particular formula. So I often would, if somebody wants handouts, instead of giving him the slides, which is a colossal waste of paper in my opinion, is give him a one pager that here's the key takeaways, here's the formulas, here's the stuff to save you from having to write them all down while we're, write, we're talking. Um, and so that's one technique I use, and there might be others out there. Somebody else can chime in on that. And so Brian, let's see. Yeah. You have to understand who you're talking to and their message information they need. Yeah. Details in the appendix. I find that at any level, the, um, executive summary, whether writing or, or in a presentation should be right up front, you know, it's figure you've got a few seconds to capture people's attention and engagement. And sometimes that's all they're looking for is what's the answer. Now, for people that go, well, wait a sec, that answer is different than what I expected. Let me dig in to understand why. Then having the details there makes sense. But if you start with the details that we use the this vendor XYZ thermocouples because of this reason and, and blah, 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 blah. And, and finally we get to what we're attaching the, the um, thermocouples to and why that's important or the location and blah, 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 blah. And page 87, we say, and then we made some measurements and so on. I'm not going to read that. It's the acronym TL semicolon uh, 
dr too long don't read part and you're exactly right is understanding the audience it makes a huge difference in everything that we do all right so those are just a handful of the different techniques of how we communicate and i'm sure there's other ones now rhetorical question is how do you best communicate and the sub question here is how do you know how do you know what you're good at and the converse of that if all of those dozen or so communication methods listed above which ones are you not so good at and what are you going to do about it that's the real question all right so why do we need to do this stuff we might be great at doing uh rival plots and doing statistical analysis and running failure analysis in the lab and sorting out the chemical composition of this corrosion and so on but we can do those on ourselves by ourselves other people typically need the results <clears throat> of the failure analysis and the recommendations from them or the rival plots and the recommendations from those and they need to understand those and so when we communicate it's a set of skills much like our statistical skills or material science skills or engineering skills of various sorts but all of those skills no matter how good you are are often for not if other people don't understand what you're doing or how you're doing it or how you get to those results or if you send out cryptic messages that nobody understands you really don't become all that credible even though you might be absolutely brilliant if other people don't understand you if you're four steps ahead of them all the time and they're not helping you by saying how did you get there um you really lose the credibility and credibility is this this concept of if our capability or what we can do right what we are our able to do with our analysis with our technical know-how with our testing capabilities and so on and that other people trust us when we say hey we did this comparison and vendor a wins for these reasons so it's a mix of being good at what you do in whatever field of engineering that we're working in and supporting in with our reliability engineering tech toolbox of things that we do but also that people trust you is right and trust doesn't happen right away we get some just be out of the doors people were naturally trusting most of the time but if you start breaking that trust or you're not clear about communicating and you just say just trust me the answer is vendor a is it well that erodes that trust a little bit if you can communicate clearly why this hypothesis test of running this and this and here's the evidence the technical capability communicated clearly and honestly um, builds or burnishes your trust it, it's it shines it up a little bit and the idea is is that the credible part is great we we want people to understand what we do and why and how we did it and that it creates a result and that they believe it or they trust those results like you know it's but it's our real goal is to influence others to take action right here's a piece of information we 
worked on to figure out whether it's vendor A or vendor B. And we have the evidence and we communicate it clearly. And now it's input into somebody's decision of, are we going to go with them or not? Now, if we did a good job at that, and it's going to balance off cost factors or ease of use factors or their financial stability of the two companies, because other elements go into choosing a vendor. But if we can show that vendor A is 10 times more reliable and will cost us you know, 100 times less in the duration of our warranty than vendor B, it provides clear information to balance against the cost of the parts and all the other elements that get fed into deciding which vendor to go with. If we just say vendor A is more reliable, but we don't communicate the elements that are necessary to make that decision, we have less ability to influence that decision. Even though we know it's gonna make a big impact, we have to communicate that. And so part of it is have a solid base to start with. And that comes with the technical capability and clear communication. And then influence is that step further where you really understand your audience and what information they need so that they can take action on the information you provide. You know, so all of what we do um, is really important to get our technical skills really solid, but equally important in my mind is our ability to communicate it, right? Now, how do you go about doing this? And I know those that have, I see plenty of names here that of regular attendees to these webinars and a good number of new people. So welcome to all of you. And hopefully you, you like my slides because I don't put tons of stuff in them. But anyway, one way to get better at something is deliberate practice. And this was, um, I, I think where I first ran into it and I'm drawing a blank on the author's name. He did it and it got misused so much in the quote he used. It's like 10,000 hours of practice and you become an expert. If you pick up a violin and play it for 10,000 hours and practice, 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 you'll be really good at it. Well, that's not entirely true. It's, you need to have feedback. Deliberate practice is the way I learned how to swim. So I, I was starting to do triathlons years ago and I really couldn't swim hardly at all. I was horrible at it. I was in college. I was the, the, the swimming coach took one look at me and says low intermediate twitch. And, um, and I struggled to move through the water. It was more than a, enough of a workout just to swim one lap. But over time I was able to swim the two plus miles, two and a quarter miles in a triathlon in an Ironman. But it was because some of my teammates, my folks I was working out with, they were excellent swimmers and they had years of, of practice with coaches. And so they were willing to stand on the deck and go, oh, you need to do this. When you bring your hand back into the water, shape it this way, try that. And then I go play, practice that for a while. And then they would say, all right, you need to do this. Here's another technique, you know, do this, do this. And it was one step at a time as they watched how I was actually conducting that swimming that I was trying to do the crawl and say, here's one next step for you to try to make an improvement. And so deliberate practice is where you're, you're practicing, say, gestures at a, at a presentation. 
And so let's say you're going to a conference this year and one of your colleagues or a good uh, a friend or a peer that you trust, to, you ask them, says, I'm going to make this presentation. I want you to, I'm working on improving my gestures. Can you watch my gestures and take a look at how the audience reacts to it? Or are they consistent with what I'm trying to communicate, you know, or whatever aspect about the gestures that you're working on, but get the feedback. It's really hard for us to see ourselves on, and especially like swimming or in, in presenting and, and still be presenting and still not be drowning. It was my case early on, but get somebody else to watch for that and give them very specific things to look for right and then sit down where you get a chance to be quiet maybe go get a beer or a cup of coffee depending on when your presentation was or where and ask them so what did you think and don't defend yourself don't argue with it don't say this was you know you don't understand is you ask them to help you give get feedback and you need to ask clarifying questions and and use examples and what do you mean by that and be specific oh if somebody comes back to you and says oh your gestures are fine in what way what could i do better how you know make sure you get them yeah and toastmasters is a great way sean is where you're going to get feedback right but it's there's an art to giving feedback and we can help people do that by giving them specific requests saying hey watch this presentation how is my a variation of voice pattern. Did I speed up when I should have? Did I slow down in other parts? Did I use volume correctly? You know, all those kinds of things you can ask somebody to be specifically attuned to and get very, very specific and ask them for the feedback and give, have them give you examples or, you know, so on. It helps you see what you can't see or experience what you can't experience. And it then allows you to say, all right, well, I'm going to work on it. And then ask them to watch your next presentation. And the team I worked with at, at HP is we routinely did that. Every presentation, every meeting, everywhere is we were constantly looking. We say, what do you want us to look at today? And I said, oh, can you look at my gestures? And, and this and this and this. I'm, I think I'm having trouble with these. And I said, all right, great. And I walked through the presentation and then I would get this amazingly detailed, practical, useful feedback. And then I would go, all right, I can practice that. I can try that. I can do something different with that and, and go and prove it. Now, one class I took years ago is they said, we, we have like these 20 different techniques for improving your discussion skills. And Part of the course is that you have to pick one or two of those things and work on them over the next six weeks. And every two weeks, we're going to get on the phone and ask you, how's it going? And then if you're not doing it, we're going to encourage you to do so because it's part of the course. If you're having trouble with it, we'll help you diagnose that and what can we do about it different and so on. And if you're doing well at it, then we're going to ask you to pick another one and work on that. But they said six weeks because it often takes six weeks to change a habit. One, you need to become aware of it. That's where the feedback comes into play. And two is you need to be, what do they call it? Unconsciously incompetent. You know you're not good at it, but you're going to try it anyway. 
And then eventually you become unconsciously competent where you're gesturing fluidity with, with fluidity and grace and it's appropriate to your presentation and it's consistent, it's not distracting and you just do it unconscious, unconsciously. That's what we want to get to, but it takes weeks and weeks of deliberate practice to get there and sometimes longer. Now there's thousands of different things in communicating that we can practice on. So part of this is pick whether it's your writing and get feedback uh, or writing tests uh, and communicating the results of them, uh, explaining MTBF to somebody and why they shouldn't use it. If you need any help with that, I'll be glad to help. Um, but pick specific things. If you're going in to do a presentation, maybe ask somebody to check your gestures, you know, or, but ask them for specific feedback that you want to learn on, to learn about and get better at and start chipping away at it. Just knock down one skill at a time and practice. And, um, that class that they had 23 things on it. I says, well, I'm going to pick one of the easy ones. I'm going to eliminate the word, the word, but from my sentence structure as in it's a beautiful day but it's going to rain later and oh you did a wonderful job but your gestures were all screwed up the problem with that format is that it's a setup and once you hear but the first part the compliment usually or the nice part gets ignored it's just a setup to tell you some bad news and defensive shields go up all kinds of weird stuff happen to us when we do that so instead say, hey, it's a beautiful day and it might rain later. Just changing that one conjunction, but for, or and for but, changes the way people hear it. And it's amazing how well it works, but it's also something that you need to very deliberately practice. Uh, and I put reminders in my calendar uh, every year to remember, remind myself to check, am I, am I still if I reverted back to using the but format or am I using the and format? Um, pronouns, use the pronouns. It's another way that we, you need to be conscious of it before you find that you need to improve. And on and on and on, tons of different skills, but deliberate practice is the way I go about doing it. So let's go through a couple of tips. And in the book that Carl and I wrote, we put two chapters uh, because they were getting much, much as one chapter was like twice the length of everything else, other chapters in the book. So our editor recommended it, breaking it up. But there's a good portion of the book that's on all of these communication skills. And it lists in part a whole series of specific things you can do, plus a bunch of resources and references and books and articles and all kinds of other stuff for you to dive into it and learn some more about it. But each of these individual tips in the book and a handful I've used to highlight here are examples of things that you can practice on. You can get deliberate practice on, right? Um, one of my favorites, uh, and I've seen it a number of different ways is when you're listening to somebody um, is to focus on the speaker and you've seen it where somebody you're talking to and they're on their phone or they're checking their email or yeah, keep talking, keep talking. It's distracting is to understand whether or not they're paying attention to or not. So do the courtesy when somebody else is addressing you that you actually focus on them. Now, 
this does not mean stare them straight in the face and with a hard stare and lean into it and kind of um, dare them to blink kind of stuff. Uh, you still need to be human. And one good technique is um, to mimic their body language. I don't mean parrot their body language. I don't mean repeat, do everything they're doing, but if they're sitting back at the table, you sit back. If they're leaning forward, you lean forward. If their arms are crossed, your arms are crossed, things like that. But it's not, the hard part is doing it so that it's not just, I'm just mimicking or saying the same thing you're doing with body language. If somebody is excited and uh, agitated and they're really angry about something, you may know this from experience. It usually doesn't do much good to say, oh, now just calm down. It's okay. That usually just pours fuel on the fire. If you instead say, with the same kind of energy they have, hey, no, I understand what you're getting at. Let, tell me more about that. Let's you know match their excitement. It helps them to know that you're listening, right? So part of it is that, that you want have to want to listen. <laughs> you have to be ready to listen. And part of it is how you go about doing it. Instead of focusing on what your response is or what your solution is or what your recommendation is, to stop and say, what is it they're really saying here? What's the real problem here? What are we trying to solve here? Help me understand it more. And some parts of that is, is matching their style so that they get the the true impression that you're actually trying to listen and to understand it, right? And then stop, and then check with them. You know, is you know, if I'm hearing this right, this is this, this, and this is happening. He says, yep, or no, and they can correct it and make sure that you are getting it. And it's another technique to show that you're actively listening. You're actually trying to listen to what they're trying to tell you. Dozens of more of, uh, listening skills and you could spend a long long time focusing on it and if you do nothing else focus on your ability to listen it it, it does wonders for all of the other things you do and if you can't listen if you are unable to actually comprehend what somebody else is saying or telling you to do or complaining about something like that it's really hard for us to provide value to to respond to that request or to respond to that circumstance or to provide a reasonable uh, response. So listening is number one and it's number one for a reason and because it's vitally important for discussions, for presenting, for report writing, everything else that we do in communicating is so contingent on our ability to listen and to other ways people say it is understand our audience. Uh, writing. Um, I've been working on writing since high school. I, I mean, I took creative writing classes. I took all the electives I could on writing. And because I knew it was such a vital part of everything we do. And emails gotten even better. Now, I've got one friend here that I, a good friend of mine that often sends the most cryptic emails I've ever seen. And, and knowing him, I, I understand some of those things, but many times I send back a quick 
message going, are you talking about today or tomorrow? Are we doing this or is doing that? What is it you're talking about here? What's the context? Now he thinks like 10 steps ahead of most everybody. So he often thinks that I just know all of what it was in his mind when he wrote uh, tonight at four or, or four o'clock meeting. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> about what? For when? What are we doing? Are we going to go off and cut a tree down or are we going to have a glass of wine? Um, and part of it is, is the executive summary doesn't mean not a sentence, but a sentence fragment. It means you need to answer the question or provide the summary of what this is about or the context of it. Uh, and there's tons of other things. But what I found is that for your really important stuff, that you really need to do well on is get an editor. I am the world's worst editor. My four-year-old, my daughter, when she was four years old, could look at my writing and go, oh, you can't spell. Um, and she would laugh at me about how bad my spelling was. And I've taught my spell checkers about 15 different ways to spell reliability inadvertently over the years. And I had to figure out how to purge that from those dictionaries. But there's lots of tactical things we can do to improve our writing. But the best part is get some feedback. Ask people for feedback on your writing, what working for them or not working for them. And that goes back to that listening thing again, and that deliberate practice. And then learning. One of our communicating skills is learning. And it left a bunch of time for this one. Um, and I appreciate the audience here is that you're here to learn something or to wonder what I'm talking about, or maybe you'll pick up one or two things to take away. That's all great. And I've heard from some people that these webinars are the team's uh, professional development. They get together in, the, in, uh, in a conference room and discuss the various topics and, and have make it a learning experience for the whole team, which is great. Um, but the idea of learning is that it's not just attend a webinar once a month. It's not put, you know, I never understood why people, when they got out of college, sold all their books. Like they never wanted to see those again. Hey, we just spent four years trying to learn all this stuff. And there's no way I can remember all of that stuff that's in all those books. And I actually want to use this stuff, right? So I kept those books. And some, yeah, I have never touched again. And there's a handful of others that I had to buy another copy because I wore it out. And it's just a, a way for us to learn to capture stuff. The internet makes it easier to look stuff up and find it and so on. But sometimes you get four different websites talking about Weibo plots and they're all give you conflicting ideas. And maybe you trust one site more than another. I'll go grab my uh, graduate school statistics book on reliability statistics. And, you know, I trust that document. I, I spent time with the professor that wrote it and went through and took his course on it. And I, yeah, I get this stuff. Um, but part of it is, you know, we send out a, um, a monthly webinar listing. We look for all the different webinars. I think we check uh, dozens and dozens of different sources. Uh, in all honesty, my wife does that. And she 
pulls down the ones that are germane to reliability, quality, safety, and risk. And we send it out to, I don't know, it goes up to 500 plus people every month. And it's just one email a month, but there's 30, 40, sometimes different webinars each month. Now, none of us have the luxury or time to attend all of those. And some of them are quite expensive and many are free, but there's plenty for us to, to learn about. And so if you go through that list and you say, oh, that looks interesting. Let me check that one out. That's part of being curious. The deliberate part is that you're signed up on that list and looking for things that you wouldn't have been looking for otherwise. So part of learning is, hey, I really need to figure out how to do this hypothesis test when I have a paired comparison. And I know there's something on that. I'm going to go track that down and learn that equation and learn the steps for it. That's very deliberate. I have a particular problem. I, I'm aware that there's a tool out there for it, for me to solve that problem. And I'm going to go find that. And you can find it online. You can find it in your favorite textbook. But the curious part is increasing what you're aware of. If you took the, the standard undergrad stats course and you learned about um, uh, the standard the basic, the fundamental hypothesis test where I'm comparing two means, that might be great if you're comparing vendor A versus vendor B and their average performance. But what happens if somebody says, oh, I need to compare the variances. That's more important to me. Well, you can do that. That's the curious part. What else can I compare? Now, you can get in a, a deep rabbit hole real quick on a lot of these topics, but part of it is like that monthly webinar se sequence. You might not attend the webinar, yet the topic you might set you back a little bit and say, hmm, I didn't know about that, or I didn't know that was a thing, or what is the concept they're talking about? You might read their abstract and say, hmm, okay and maybe look up some resources and references on it. Maybe spend five minutes on it instead of a whole hour in a webinar and go do a quick research on that. If something crosses your mind as, oh, I don't know about that. How would I ever use that? Well, a quick search nowadays or uh, just thinking about it sometimes is enough to go, hmm, that may come in handy somewhere. You might not have an application today, but being aware of the variety of different ways we can do what we do and how we communicate is the first step is to be aware that the stuff's out there and there are things available for us to improve on or, be, or the increase our, the size of our toolbox of how we can go about solving problems. So it's a combination of being curious of what's out there and what other people are working on and how do they solve problems and get things done but then also being very deliberate. So focus on the things that you want to improve, communication skills for one, or technical skills, but get the resources, get the somebody that can mentor you or coach you on it, or somebody you can bounce ideas off of or ask for feedback from. Um, be very deliberate. It goes back to that deliberate practice kind of thing. But uh, I think the curiosity part is as important if not more important than finding the page on doing variance hypothesis testing. One of the other last points here, and I'll slow down, 
and I could talk about this stuff all day long, as you probably know, is, is to consistently learn. Is, you know, my mom used to say, you know, she, we use it as a phrase. Well, I just learned something. This is where I learned something today. So I'm good. And it was kind of a joke. And it was honor of reference or something she knew from somewhere. So you should learn something every day. And so we made it a joke is why I learned something today, especially if it was before school. And my brothers and I, we say, oh, okay. So we don't need to go to school today because we already learned something. And that never worked. Um, so we learned our mom didn't mean just learn one thing <laughs> kind of thing. But the idea is, is that that should be very deliberate is consistently learn. If you go through the whole day and didn't learn anything except somebody in a blue car can cut you off and make you angry, well, that's not terribly productive. But if you spent five minutes going, hmm, you can do a comparison of a two variances. And your questions might be, why would you want to do that? What's the benefit of it? There's plenty of information on that. Or it might be, what distribution are you using? And what are the assumptions that I need to consider when I set up that test? Here's information available on that. And, but the idea is, is that your learning could be very ad hoc in just a couple of minutes, or you could set aside, you know, a couple hours every week to dive into a topic and to read the technical papers or do some research for a project you're working on, or deliberately attend webinars or go to courses or take a class. There's lots of ways that we can go about learning. But the number one thing is you need to make space for it and be okay with that. I'm going to go spend five, 10 minutes, sort this out and go figure it out. That's okay. It actually makes you a better employee. It makes you better at what you do. It makes you more skilled and capable. This is all great stuff. Um, the other part of consistently learning is, you know, keep notes. I use Evernote religiously. I grab stuff and I put pages together. And, and so I have a, this gobbly gook of a database, but it's like, you know, I looked into that a while back. Let me see what I found there and where can I start again? So I don't have to restart every single time. There's obviously lots more. The, the book Carl and I wrote has uh, all these, I think there's 11 or 12 different uh, communicating methods that we list in there. We talk about you know, best practices and tips for improvement, plus lots of references and resources. So that's, that's the place to go to find tons of information about all these things, or just send me a question. I'd be happy to chat with you on it. Um, and there's a, the name of the book. And so let me wrap up there. Let me see if I missed any of the questions. So Bert just ordered, well, I should, Next Generation Halton Hats. That's the one by uh, Kirk Douglas, I think, or Kirk Douglas, Kirk Gray. Um, I think he'd be happy to hear that. It is a good book. Um, and it's a good way to dive into the concept of Halton Hass. And I think he does a good job of doing that, getting that across. All right. <laughs> yeah, Arun, the, the listening tips are useful in personal relationships. Yep, definitely. Um, yeah, you know, Willie, I didn't think of that is the freestyle swimming is 
is uh, the proper technique has changed. I'm just happy to get across the pool and, and not drown and, and be totally exhausted, especially when I was starting to do triathlons, because I need to get out of the pool and still ride my bike and run. Um, and the first kind of couple of times I just, that just, <laughs> that didn't work. I was exhausted after the, the relatively short swim of my first two events. <laughs> Brian borrowed it for two weeks and bought his own. Well, tell him he should buy one for everybody in the team. That would be cool. Appreciate that. All right. Folks are heading off to other meetings and all the other good stuff. So um, let me go ahead and end the recording and I'll stay on the line if there's anything else. But thanks to everybody for attending and for all the comments and stuff. Certainly appreciate it. Thank you.